you know, it was our third day onto the ground and I'd never been blown up before. You know, I've been around IEDs, but I've never been blown up myself. It's one of those moments where you almost feel happy in a way because you're like, whoa, I got blown up and I'm alive. You know, there's that huge sense of relief. But then you start shouting around because you can't see anything because there's fucking dust and stuff everywhere. Start shouting around and then you realize some of the lads aren't shouting back. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down the Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Children. Yeah, going to a children. I could never often. not go back. They, they were my friends and they felt the trouble like us. She did say, you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd in London today with a veteran of the British Army. Garrett Jones deployed three times to the Middle East as an infantry soldier twice to Iraq and once to Afghanistan. For his actions in Basra, Gez was awarded the General Officer Commanding's Commendation. Upon leaving the military, Gez worked to protect commercial shipping against Somali and Nigerian-based piracy. He now writes full-time and is the author of historical fiction novels Blood Forest and Siege, and writes with James Patterson under the name Rhys Jones. He also wrote Major Adam Jowett's account of the siege in Musakala, No Way Out. Gez has just released his memoir, Brothers in Arms, a recount of his time in Afghanistan, which will be the focus of our conversation today. Gez, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks for having me, mate. Am I your first Brit? Uh, No, you're not my first Ah, Brit. You're my first Brit (laughs) infantryman. (laughs) Well, I'll take that. Before we start, congratulations on the release of your latest book. In full disclosure to listeners, I did get to work on it with you in a professional capacity, and it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks, mate. You know, these things are a big team effort. If it wasn't for your help and the help of everybody else involved, it would not have made it out. So thank you. Okay, Gez, before we dive into Afghanistan, let's quickly cover all the stuff before. Do you have any military history in the family? Not like the direct family. You know, the First World War, the Second World War, as most probably British families do. My grandfather was a navigator on Lancaster bombers during the Second World War, which was a pretty gnarly job. You know, they had 75% casualty rate in that part of the service. But he got out at the end of the war. He completed his tour with the, uh, the RAF, and then he went into the Royal Welsh Fusiliers as an officer. Went out to um, the Far East, and, you know, if they hadn't dropped the bombs on Japan, I probably wouldn't be here because he probably wouldn't have made it through the rest of the war, so... The career soldier in the family was his brother, very young officer at the beginning of the war. He was at Dunkirk. Uh, He went back on uh, D-Day plus six. He went back into that part of the world and fought his way through the rest of the war. And then he stayed in the army until he retired, I think in his 60s. He was very helpful when it came to uh, me finding out about joining the army and stuff, but it's certainly nothing that was ever pushed on me by uh, family members or anything like that, or or there wasn't any like close family members involved. It's quite miraculous that you're actually alive. I mean, Bomber Command, highest casualty rate in World War II, except for the German U-boat crews. It was statistically safer to be an infantry officer in World War I on the Western Front than in Bomber Command. And Dunkirk and D-Day plus six. I mean, that's amazing. My granddad did have a lot of shrapnel left in him until the day that he died. He did get shot down. He was very nearly a casualty. I mean, he well, he was an injured casualty, but he was, a, you know, they fixed him up and <laughs> fixed him up and sent him back in. 
But yeah, it was a, if anything, he was a cautionary tale when it came to the military because something I never really understood later, but because I was always like, well, why doesn't Grandad go to like the remembrance parades and stuff like that? Well, because he lost almost all his fucking mates, that's why. And, um, you know, he remembered every day, I'm sure. I, you know, and there was times where, you know, I, I'd come back from Iraq and, you know, and it was funny because when I did come back the first time, there was a new kind of, I don't want to say it wasn't respect, but he definitely looked at me in a new way. And I think that he understood that there was like, and I'm not comparing what I did to him, you know, like you said, this, you know, what they went through is instantly, but there was that kind of thing of, you know, we've been a part of something that no one else in the family has. So we're like in our own little club. Tell me about your journey to the army. Yeah, I was just born with it in my DNA, man. I had to be a soldier. No two ways about it. And when I say a soldier, I mean an infantry soldier, because that's what a soldier is to me. No disrespect to anyone that does other jobs. All those jobs are needed, but to me, Soldier means infantry soldier. I was going to say, even with your grandfather's inspiring example of the Air Force. Well, I don't know. Dude, it's one of those things with the RAF, Bomber Command especially, I think at the time, they had this thing about them as like, we do this really tough job and it's pretty nuts. And if you're a bit nuts and you want to get after it, come and do this job. So maybe if I was around at that time, I probably would have, well, not probably would have, probably 100% would have gone and done the same thing as And him. you would have got paid better for it. Yeah, and I would have had a nice uniform probably too, nice trendy little uniform. But in this day and age, if you want to get amongst it, you join the special forces or the infantry, and usually you have to go to the infantry before you go to the special forces, so... You sniffed where the action was and just wanted to test yeah, it. Yeah, all routes lead to being a grunt. So that's what I did, man, and I'm, I don't regret that one little one little bit. I get like people asking me on social media quite often, I, I want to be in the infantry, but... Well, you know, should I do this other trade to get qualifications? Look, if you want to be in the military, do the job you want to do in the military. Don't look at it as this is a stepping stone to the next thing. Because if you want to do that, there's far better ways of doing that in civilian life. So don't do it half-assed. You want to be in the infantry, be in the fucking infantry. And if you, you know, if you want qualifications and stuff like that, there's probably better ways of getting them than going into something which is going to take away a lot of your civil liberties. So anyone out there is asking themselves that question, you know, go with your gut. And that's what I did. You know, I went to, um, originally I was going to go as an officer because there was no wars going on when I, you know, I first started looking into this. And I thought, well, got the education, getting that education. Uh, I thought being an officer would be a better career path. You know, my uncle seemed quite happy with what he'd done. And I knew that, you know, if you went into the ranks, you'd probably do 22 years. And chances are that would probably be it. Whereas if you're an officer, you could serve up into your 50s quite easily if, you know, you've passed the relevant boards and all that kind of stuff. So I joined the uh, Territorial Army the week I turned 17, which is, you know, as soon as I could do it. I was in sixth form at the time, so I was doing my A-levels, you know, so about 17, well, 17, 18 years old. Then I went to university, continued doing it through there. And then while I was in university, Iraq happened. I'd had a go at the commissioning board when I was 17. I failed at the second thing. I basically got to come back when you're older, which at the time I was like, I don't need to be older. And now looking back and I was like, how did you even wipe your ass? So yeah, I mean, I definitely shouldn't be giving a platoon of men at that point, which is basically what they're saying. If you, when you pass that board within, you know, say two years, you're going to be in command of a platoon of men. I mean, I was a million miles away from that. That was a good thing that that didn't happen. And, but yeah, once Iraq started to happen and I had friends going out there in 2003, 2004, you know, the Sadr uprisings in 2004, those big ass fights up in Al Amara and stuff. I had friends involved in that. And I was thinking, I don't think I want to be an officer anymore. I want to be, you know, I want to be one of these guys doing the shooting. So I decided I'd use the TA as the back door to the uh, regular army. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what I did. How do you think your experiences there prepared you for Afghanistan and what came after? So my first tour was basically, think of blue balls with sex. That was my first tour, right? I was there in 2006, the end of 2006, beginning of 2007, when Basra was just going fucking nuts. 
Like there was huge contacts all the time. There was loads of IDF. It was huge fights. Challenger tanks on the streets, warrior armored battle groups. Unfortunately, quite high casualties. Place was going nuts. And I was with a company whose job was essentially protecting the airbase. So luckily I got seconded a few times to do jobs where I was with Ato, just like bomb disposal guys. So I got to go and do like some cool jobs during my time. But the majority of my time was in quite a benign role, which was staggering on in the fucking guard tower, looking at the desert. Except I wasn't looking at the desert. Sometimes I was looking at the city where I'd be watching these enormous firefights going on. And honestly, it was worse than not being that. Like, this isn't something that most rational people would want to do, but it was killing me to not be involved in that. You've got the blue balls and there's an orgy next door you can't join in. Yeah, and honestly, like, it's... I would say that that, out of all my tours, that tour was the hardest because I didn't get to do anything. And, like, you'd be staggering on a gate sometimes and the battle group rolls back in and all the guys have got smoke all over, you know, they got, like, black faces all smoked out from the fights. They're smoking out the back of the vehicle. They're looking hard as nails. And I'm like... Hey, welcome back to base. It was fucking horrible, dude. So I did what any rational person would do. I thought, right, which battalion got smashed most on that tour? I'll stay on with their replacement, which is what I did. They were so desperate for blokes at the time that like getting that put in was pretty easy. So I did back-to-back tours in Iraq. So I had like a reasonably easy learning curve on that first tour. And it, like I said, I did get to do some cool jobs out there. And I did get to learn like a lot when I did those jobs. So I got to learn about the process of what, you know, what ATO is doing when it comes out to a scene. So when I was on the later tour, when I was the cordon for one of those scenes, I was like, oh, I understand what the process of what's going on now. So that was quite helpful, but mostly it was frustrating. Second tour, everyone just assumed that I'd been with the battle group that they replaced. And I didn't tell them any differently because I didn't want to admit that I'd just been lifting a fucking gate up mostly for six months. So they were like, well, great. We'll put him in the lead warrior. And then, <laughs> and then I, found, so I found myself as a team commander. Uh, warrior's like an armored fighting vehicle. I didn't even know how to open the door to get in the back. <laughs> Yeah, I took over that job. Yeah, I would characterize that tour as uh, lots of IDs, uh, spending the first few months really trying to resupply Basra Palace, which was besieged. I think it was the most heavily attacked place in Iraq at that time. Constant rain of mortars and uh, rockets on it. The city, every time we went into the city, there was things kicking off. My job was kind of to run out the back of the warrior, look at dodgy things on the side of the road, see if it was an ID, and then jump in the back. So that's kind of like how my tour went. And then the second half of the tour got a lot quieter because the British government came to an understanding with the local militia where we basically left the city. I would say with our tails between our legs because even though it wasn't our decision to go, we were under no illusions on the ground as to what was happening. We'd been fucking fighting these guys for years. And in our minds, we were winning. Every time we had scrap, we felt like we were winning. And then we were told, no, pack your bags, you're pulling out the city. And then all these guys who you spent months and months capturing these bad guys, you now got to let them open the gate and then walk out. And I mean, that was fucking soul destroying. Should have learned my lesson at that point, but I didn't. I went home, demobilized, went back to being like, you know, kind of like half military, half civilian. And then um, I was working in the gym a couple of months later and I saw footage of a warrior smashing through a wall in Afghanistan. I was like, yeah, fuck this, I want to go to Afghanistan. So started calling, started making the calls. And um, yeah, about a year and a half later, I was, in, uh, I was in Afghanistan. So when exactly is that and with which regiment? So I went out in July 2009 with the Royal Welsh, second battalion of the Royal Welsh. I was supposed to go six months earlier, but the army's the army. And by the time I got my paperwork, it was halfway through their tour. And they were like, look, just we'll just keep you in the battalion and send you out with the next lot. So yeah, I went out. I was, that, that worked out quite well for me because it was the same company that I'd been with in Iraq. So I knew a lot of the guys. So I was quite happy with that. My original intention was that I was going to go out with the first one, do a tour with them, and then stay on with the second one, do back-to-backs again. But like, you know, I was happy enough to be going out. 
And yeah, things were going like kind of crazy out there when we went again. I mean, I, I've ha- I've kind of had this knack of turning up at these places where they're, when they're at their worst. So Iraq was at its worst in 2007, was out there for that. And then summer of 2009 was the worst time out in Afghanistan. I turned up for that on time. And it's a funny one because it's like you never wish injury on anybody on your own side. But at the same time, I think a soldier would, like a, an infantry soldier would be lying if they said that they didn't want to turn up when shit was kicking off its most, which obviously is when there's the most casualties. So, you know, it's a weird one because it's like you don't like admitting that you wanted to be there when shit was going bad. But I think that a lot of us were fucking excited. You know, a lot of us excited to go and get into that. Still shit ourselves too, but <laughs> that's just how it is. We'll come back to your psyche as an infantier. Keeping in mind that many of our listeners are Australian and how young my country is, I want to emphasize that being a part of a regiment like the Royal Welsh can be quite meaningful considering all its history. Yeah, mate, absolutely. The Marines, fucking hell, how old is Royal Welsh now? Over 300 years old. Fought a pretty much, you look back at any meaningful battle, you know. Rourke's Drift. From Rourke's Drift, you know, so if anyone's watched the movie Zulu, that's who you're watching. It's Royal Welsh. Well, the descendants of the Royal Welsh, because there was more regiments back then. But like, they, you know, those battle honors belong to the Royal Welsh. You know, the Somme, Waterloo, Gallipoli, all these names of basically fucking shit shows that the British Army has been involved in. You know, all, all the American, you know, the War of the Revolutionary War, pretty much every battle against Napoleon. Royal Welsh has been, you know, one of the battalions that made up the Royal Welsh has been involved in a war. So as a proud lineage, to say the least, you know, one of their original depots is in the town, the hometown that I grew up in. So there's buildings there where when you're on that parade square, you are literally on the same parade square that guys were parade square on hundreds of years ago. The guys that went off to fight Napoleon stood in that parade square. There's pictures from the First World War of battalions before they marched off to France on that parade square. You know, and when you're a young lad especially, that really has an impact on you, I think. I mean, when your fucking ancestors are the people who are in Rourke's Drift winning God knows how many VCs in a day, I can't even remember. My regiment has got a bit worn out. But it's fair to say that there's a bit of pressure on you to not be, um, to not be a bad soldier. Well, as you land in Afghanistan, the pressure's on to be the best kind of soldier you can be. What were your early impressions of the country? The day I flew to Afghanistan, I attended a friend's funeral in the morning. You know, he'd been killed with the Welsh Guards, you know, and I went to his funeral in the morning and then flew into Afghanistan in the afternoon. So it's fair to say I was in the best mood. There was a lot of, you know, every every time you go on tour, there's always that second thought of like, is this a bit silly? But when you've just been to your mate's funeral, I would say I was pretty depressed, to be honest. You know, I was excited too. You know, I was excited. And when we got there and I started being amongst the blokes and stuff, you know, I started to kind kind of do that compartmentalization, you know start to try and forget about home. You know, you see like helicopters whizzing overhead and the GMLRS are firing big ass missiles into support of Operation Panther's Claw, which was going on at the time. You know, that gives you a fucking war boner. You know, you want, you love that stuff. But at the same time, you're seeing the helicopters coming in and landing at the hospital. And you know, every time the helicopter comes in, that's some lad that's life's probably never going to be the same again. So it was a weird one, dude. It was a, it was like a cliche roller coaster. It was like one minute, it's like, I can't wait to go out and get this stuck in. Next minute you heard about who died that day and you're like, oh my God, I feel a bit sick. You know, it's like waiting is just waiting is the worst thing with everything really. And we spent a couple of weeks in Bastion before we got on the ground. You spend most of your day to day waiting as well. Yeah. Once you get stuck into things, it's usually you're good to go. But that waiting, knowing every day, you know, like in the evenings we'd attend vigils for people that had been killed in the day or two before it. And it was a constant stream that July. It was just like you know, amputee, dead guy, amputee, dead guy. And like, you know, these guys who were out on the ground, they were giving it all, you know, and they were hammering the enemy, don't get me wrong, but like they were getting hammered in return. It was a, it was a slog for them. And again, there's that mix of emotions because part of you just wants to get out there with them 
And then there's other moments where the reality of burning to death inside of a vehicle or something, you really kind of grasp what that means for like, a, you know, maybe like even maybe it's a 10 second thing that it really sinks home to you that that could happen to you and your mates. And if you're looking at one of your mates and you're thinking, I could be looking at him in a few days and his arms and his legs are gone. I'm a writer now. I write fiction. I have a good imagination. It's not what you want. You don't want a good imagination when you're going to war because you're just thinking of all the fucking horrible things that can go wrong. But you're also thinking, ah, oh, brother VC at the end of this tour, probably. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's I, I fucking defy any infantryman to say he's never thought about having a VC on his chest. It's just how we think, you know, we use, we're pretty good at thinking best case scenario, except of course, a lot of the times those guys get those medals, there's nothing best case about it. Well, you just described there that you're going through your mind, all these possible horrific scenarios and results. And in your own wording just then, you're not just worried about that for yourself, but also your mates. Your book is called Brothers in Arms and some of the key brothers in arms for your Afghanistan tour are The Firm. Tell me more about The Firm. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, dude, the people you worry about most are your, are your brothers. And for me, that closest group of friends was, uh, we, you know, we, we were nicknamed The Firm after like a cheesy British gangster movie. Yeah, we were all like uh, all Lance Corporals and Corporals is five of us, all veterans of Iraq. We all had at least three tours to our names. So we're quite kind of salty in that respect. Well, this is our third tour, you know, we were quite kind of salty. All of us had experienced IEDs, you know, snipers, contacts, IDF. We'd experienced all that before. All the other guys, they'd lost close friends on our last tour of Iraq. It was only me that, you know, that hadn't because I was new to the battalion. So we knew that that kind of stuff not only could happen, but did happen. That just makes you all the closer, I think. Whereas some of the younger lads, yeah, were they great mates? Of course they were. But I think for us, it was going in. We knew we had this weight that you had to carry. And we knew there's that, almost that resistance at first when you get getting to know each other and getting to know a new group because you're thinking like, I don't want to get too attached to like, because dude, when I get a fucking pet, I'm, I'm worried about getting too attached to it. And like, you know, you, you know what's going to go ahead. And you, the more you find out about each other, the more you find out about people's family lives, their kids, you know, people's hopes and dreams the more you kind of exposing yourself to that kind of pain if something happens. But, you know, these lads were great. They were fucking brilliant soldiers. They were professional. None of us were had like a, what I'd say is a gunko attitude. We all wanted to get after the enemy. We were all good at what we did. We kind of just wanted to be left alone and to do our own thing. We didn't like the army interfering with us. It's like, you know, if you want to tell us, this is the area we want you to be in. There's Taliban here. You decide how you deal with it. We would have gone out and got amongst it and everything, but we would have probably dealt with things in a very different way than what we were told. So we were a bit of a fawn in the side of the hierarchy sometimes because we were quite outspoken, which I don't have a problem with. I think you should be outspoken, especially if you're an NCO. And there's a difference between being outspoken just to be a gobshite and because you have more experience as a group than the hierarchy do. You have a duty to be outspoken as well because it's not only your own lives that you're talking about here, but the lives of the junior soldiers under your command. If you think someone's fucking stupid, you should say it is. In your book, you do just that. You're very honest in your writing. All the frustrations with some of the army's rules, which we'll come back to that, to your psyche at the time. You've touched on it before, but you are really honest that you're there because you want to go to war. You want to satisfy, as you call it, that war boner. Yeah. The war boner is a powerful thing. Do not underestimate it. I wanted to go to war. You know, I'd been to Iraq. But like I said, my job in Iraq was scurrying around looking for IDs. You know, I wasn't the SEAL Team 6 idea that I had in my head. You know, I, well, I mean, I kicked in a few doors very badly. Scared some local cats and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I've been shot at and all that kind of shit. But I just didn't feel like I had the war experience, you know. And like seeing Afghanistan and the stuff that had been going on in the years before we got there. You know, it was like compound clearing and stuff like that. And I was like, that's what I want to be doing. Fortunately, by the time we got there, it was more about 
again, walking around looking for IEDs, which seems to be the job that the army has always wanted to give me. I wanted to fight the enemy. I just think that it's something some people were born with. I wasn't someone that particularly went out and started fights or anything like that when I was at home. Definitely don't like getting punched in the face, boxing or any of that stuff. You know, my brother was into boxing and he'd try and get me to do it. I'm like, I don't want to get punched in the face. He's like, you've been to Afghanistan and Iraq. I'm like, yeah, but the chances are I won't get shot. If I go boxing, I'm definitely getting punched in the face. <laughs> And obviously there is no black and whites in the world, right? So there are instances where people are forced to fight for the Taliban. You know, there's probably some people in the British army who shouldn't be, who probably got lured into there at 16 for the wrong reasons. Like, so there are those examples, but there's definitely people in the Taliban who just wanted to scrap. And there's definitely people in the British army like me who just wanted to scrap. And I really like the idea about me turning up and him turning up and we try and kill each other. And it's big boy rules. And you know, if you kill me, you kill me. And if I kill you, you kill you. Some people won't say this, but again, I'll be the first one to say it. I think if I'd have grown up in Afghanistan, I'd be fighting for the Taliban. You grow up in certain areas, you support a certain footy team, right? I've spoken with German World War II veterans, and, you know, the sentiment is, oh, if I'd been born in England, I would have fought for England. Exactly. I was born in Germany, so I fought for Germany. Exactly, dude. There's a lot of people who, say, British soldiers that went in the commandos in the Second World War. If they were German, they probably would have gone to some one of the elite SS battalions because that was the best unit to be with. You know, people need to be more honest about stuff like that and stop turning their it's like look you want to be a fucking soldier just admit you want to be a soldier and wherever you lived you probably do it now that's the difference between doing all the extracurricular stuff that they do and whipping people's feet for certain altercations and stuff like that but when it comes down to man fighting on man there's just a certain percentage of us are born with that of that desire to want to do it and that's it hasn't left me. I still want to go and do it, dude. You know, 100%. And I know most of the lads do. There's a reason that we spend fucking hours on Instagram watching combat footage and stuff like that. And then tweeting, oh God, I wish I was back in the thing. You know, it's because we want a scrap. That's what we were born to do. In my opinion, at least. It's kind of funny then that the first time you get to fire your weapon on the Taliban and realize this great desire within you that you have a performance issue with your weapon. Yeah, there was a performance issue. Uh, basically, I had a GPMG, which is a 7.62mm belt-fed machine gun, which is sex on a bipod. It had been on the deck plates of my vehicle when we got blown up, um, probably like a week earlier. And I was a bit worried that the force of that blast would have messed up the little intimate bits inside the gun. And so I asked for permission to test fire it into a big dry waddy bed and was told no. Which was weird because there was big, big kickoffs going on every night and bombs getting dropped everywhere, but apparently I couldn't test for my weapon. And then a few nights later, I was up in the Sangha and I saw there was a Taliban running back and forth between the compound as big contact was going off. They were enraging my gun. And it was everything I'd always wanted, you know, enemy in the open. And I fired, went bang, click, bang, click, bang, click. And I thought at first it was down to oil or something like that, but... um. It turned out we got an armor to look at it the next day and we had to, we sent it back to the main patrol base and uh, there was like a tiny little spring in there that had been fucked from the explosion. And I'll never forgive them for that because that could have been a lot of dead people in between those compounds. And I just want to flip this desk over thinking about it. <laughs> you mentioned the explosion that damaged the weapon in the first place. And that incident is a key example of how your tour gets heavy quite quickly because that's when you're on the road to your new home, patrol base Minden. You're in a warrior, which you've mentioned. For any listener who doesn't know exactly what a warrior is, your book's glossary describes it as, quote, a track armored vehicle with a turret that houses a 30 millimeter cannon and a 7.62 millimeter coaxial machine gun with space in the back for a team of sweaty, angry infantry soldiers. <laughs> so on this journey to PB Minden, the warrior hits an improvised explosive device. What happens next? Well, worst day of my life, I suppose, in a lot of ways. I mean, I'll go into it fully detail in the book. And, um, 
you know, I just read the audio book and it's fucking hard going through that chapter again. But yeah, basically, I'll give the long story. We had some casualties, treated them, got them onto the, uh, the medical, like uh, the evacuation helicopter. You know, it was our third day onto the ground and I'd never been blown up before. You know, I've been around IEDs, but I've never been blown up myself. Fucking horrible experience. Feel like you've been beaten up and had handfuls of sand shoved down your throat and all this kind of shit. First, when you realize that you're in one piece and you've come through it, it's one of those moments where you almost feel happy in a way because you're like, whoa, I got blown up and I'm alive. You know, there's that huge sense of relief. But then you start shouting around because you can't see anything because there's fucking dust and stuff everywhere. Start shouting around and then you realize some of the lads aren't shouting back, you know, and that's why it's the worst, you know, worst, worst day in life. One of the lads passed away. Another one was, you know, he was out of action for a while. Don't really think I realized at the time that like how much maybe that affected me because I'm thinking three days into this tour of six months and this has already happened. Chances are this is going to happen several times again. And it did happen several times again. It wasn't on my vehicle, but it did happen again. And, you know, very well, I mean, like, dude, in the book, you know, there's a couple of like close calls, you know, to the firm as well, where like, you know, literally millimeters one way could have meant the end of one of the lads in the firm. Yeah, I mean, dude, getting blown up fucking sucks. I know there's some vehicles. I have some friends who have been in vehicles. They're like, oh, I got blown up three times. Like American mine clearing units and these giant aircraft carriers of fucking vehicles, which like, you know, you hit with something and they're like, oh, what was, what, what was that? You know, they're all, they've got like race harnesses in. It's still probably really bad for like what's going on inside your brain because your brain still probably gets chucked about. But these things just shake them off. You don't shake them off in a warrior, it fucks a warrior. You know, the company we were taking over from had lost seven warriors as Keikos, over a third of your company's strength, basically. They got a flat hull, which has no dispersion of blast. And it doesn't even sit above the ground because of the sand and stuff, you're pretty much touching the ground. So the bomb is literally touching the metal underneath your feet. And yeah, it sucked. Shouldn't be using the warriors there is the bottom line, from my opinion. And I won't get you to describe that day anymore, but... Just for clarity for the listeners, one of those casualties you have to attend to first aid on, and it's very graphically described in the book, and I think that gives real insight into the raw experience you have to go yeah, through. Yeah, and I, the reason I did that, dude, that wasn't an easy decision to do, but I did it because it's easy to just write, an IED went off, someone passed away. That's so clinical and so sterile. There's no emotion really attached to it. No, almost. I mean... It's fucking horrible when an IED goes off, dude. And it's like, it's things that stick with you. And I will be a bit graphic to give people an idea of some things. It's things like you see, like the fact that sand sticks to like people's injuries. You know, like, so if you, you know, you get wet clothes and like sand sticks to it. Well, that happens with injuries too. And I wanted people to like really think about that and have to think about it. I want it to be fucking hard reading for people when they read that. I don't want people to just be able to go, oh, someone passed away in an injury. That's sad. I want people to feel sick. When it is hard that. to read. It is. Well, it should be, you know. So, yeah. And it was hard, dude. And, like, contacting their family to tell them about that was fucking hard. That's why I put it off for, like, four years. Um, but, yeah. Well, when you're in such high-stress environments, going through, well, these exhilarating moments when you're getting to fire at the enemy and fulfill that kind of dream to these more traumatic moments, there's then this bizarre world of regulation and rules. And I don't mean in terms of the general structure or the system, but there's just certain things that stick out and eat away at you. And on paper, they might sound very minor and why are you getting so upset about it? Like things like haircut regulations, like that sounds very minor, but it actually becomes a real thorn in your side to obviously bigger picture things like rules of engagement. I'm quite an independent person, right? You know, there's a lot of people in the army who just don't, they don't give a shit about taking on stuff like that. A few times I've done those like personality tests and it always comes up as like, I'm like the questioner. 
Like I want stuff to make sense to me. Like I need to know why something's going on. So if you say to me, we're not going to go down these paths because this is a high probability of IEDs. I think, well, that makes perfect sense. Obviously we won't go down there. So if you say to me, right, you can't wear a t-shirt on patrol. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, how come? And you don't have an answer for me. Then that's going to bug me. To give you context, when we were in some of these patrol bases, we have no water. Like we have to patrol out to go and get water from a well with the locals, right? Which every time you go out there, you go into the same point all the time. It's fucking dangerous. So we haven't got water to wash, but they want us to shave every day, right? 50 Celsius in the summer. We are not really hydrated and stuff, but you've got to have shaved and shit, right? Which all that happened was everyone ended up getting like nasty rashes and stuff because you're opening up the skin every time you do that. And then you're living in dirt and you can't properly wash. So we're like, this just seems silly to us. And it, so it'd be things like that. And then it came down with, well, in Vietnam, American troops started raping and killing people. And we don't want that happening in Afghanistan. Now I take that as a fucking insult. So if you allow me to grow a couple of days stubble, I'm going to start raping the local populace, am I? So I'm What's like, the thin end of the wedge argument? One thing leads to another. Yeah, another. so I'm like, look, dude, I'm out here doing my fucking job. And I like to say I'll do a pretty fucking good job doing it most of the time. Don't tell me I'm going to start raping people because I got a bit of fucking stubble on the go. Mate, I've got some stubble as we're recording this now. I have not committed any acts of that kind ever, right? So the idea that all of a sudden now, because I've got long hair and stubble, that, and I'm wearing a t-shirt, it's insulting. But the way I see it, right, you're asking a lot from your troops. So when you treat them, you know, the whole Wellington quote of the infantry stuff, the scum of the earth. Well, when I kind of feel that we're held in contempt like that, I'm like, look, mate, you're the one that's not doing your job getting us helicopters. And you're the one that's not doing the job putting the patrol base in the right place. We're doing our fucking job. So maybe you should wind your neck in and you should think more about how your fucking hair looks. And the reason why, and I explained this in the book, is I think on reflection, a lot of it came down to the fact that you were denied so many freedoms when you're in Afghanistan. Eat what you're given to eat. You wash when you can, when you, you know, you don't really get the, the options to be like, oh, I'm going to have a nice long shower now. You know, all those kind of things. You walk literally on the square meter that you've been shown is clear that you can walk on. You know, you don't get to just go like, I, I, in, in Iraq, when we were on the, uh, the air base, you could go for a run around the air base and stuff. You could feel like you had some freedoms. Didn't have that in Afghanistan. It was like, it was like prison. From speaking to the lads I know who've done both, worse than prison. You have control over nothing. So to give someone like control over, you know what? I'm gonna let you get away with that let extra half inch of sideburn or something. It seems ridiculous. And I know, like it does seem ridiculous. But you're giving the guys some feeling that they have control over something. And I think psychologically that's very powerful. So it's this combination of and I'm sure anyone listening to this is going, this guy's a dickhead. Like, what's he complaining about? <laughs> but like Honestly, the com combination of being condemned in one hand, like we don't, we don't trust you, is basically what they're saying. And then at the same hand, we're taking away all your freedoms of choice. Those two things, and it wasn't just me, I do. I mean, this is wound up a lot of people. And it was, to be honest, I think that was the kind of stuff that it wasn't seeing people die that made me leave the military. What made me and so many other veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan leave the military was this no you don't get to make any choices and we are going to treat you like a convict, like someone who doesn't, doesn't deserve a say in anything. That's what drove so many of us out. That's why I left. And then moving from, you know, the example of haircuts or t-shirts or mixing your cams uniforms to let's take a more practical example of when you're out in the field, you found that your life was valued less than a few hundred stems of corn. Hearts and minds. Um, if you're fighting a counterinsurgency, I mean, I find it hard to even call Afghanistan a counterinsurgency when you're literally dealing with like sometimes battalion sized units and shit. 
So a heart of minds, yeah. You've got to get the local population on side. So the earlier tours where they were just dropping bombs on like almost every contact, it was a good idea to stop doing that. Even though I would say the horse had bolted by the time you'd blown everyone's house up the first time, you know, their thinking was, oh, if we don't do it the second time, maybe they'll stay on side. And you know what? In a country like Afghanistan, which is constantly known war, that might actually work because they kind of accept the war is war and they will, you know, that stuff will happen. You know, people might be surprised that just because civilian does get killed by, say, British forces, doesn't mean that family will turn into Taliban supporters because the Taliban are probably the worst to them in a lot of ways. And they just understand war and they understand that shit happens in war. Don't think British public get that. Can't speak for the Aussie public, but I don't, you know, I definitely don't think British public do. They don't understand that shit will happen came to the cornfields it was basically they didn't want us making our own routes through the cornfields because they didn't want to piss the locals off because you would want to do the cornfield route because that's going to not have IEDs in it exactly so there's a few there's very few routes that we could use right and we couldn't watch them all the time it's not like we were on top of a mountain and we could see all these routes you can't see most of them which meant they were full of IEDs so we were forced to use those routes that had IEDs so obviously what we want to do is cut our own routes either on foot or on the or with the vehicles and go through cornfields, which the the locals do get compensated for. But they were basically the argument was, oh well, we don't want to have, we don't want to inconvenience them through going through that. So instead, they'd rather inconvenience a bloke for having his fucking legs blown off. And the bottom line is, I'm adamant about this. We did lose guys because of this policy because we used the same tracks again and again and again and again. And then when we tried to fucking cut through other tracks, the uh, platoon commanders be reprimanded for it. So. Either don't send the vehicles down those tracks or let people make their own tracks. But like the idea of having a fixed number of tracks that you use, that goes against everything that you've been taught. Because you guys would detect the IEDs painstakingly, dangerously, remove them, go through the track, and then the next time you go through the track, they've been replanted. So or even just all. coming back on the second leg of the journey. You, you know? just get through all that all over again. You have to go through it all over again. And look, let's say you're talking about an operation to take a village or something like that. There's going to be, you have to clear IDs and stuff. Totally get it. But this idea of just clearing through the same things again and again and again, and then reseeding them, like that whole, what's that whole definition of insanity thing? It's doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Well, guess what? The result of going over the same tracks with IDs is that people get fucking blown up and die, you know? So I don't know what was going on in people's heads, man, because we could see that it wasn't a good idea. And um, I don't claim to be Rommel, so... It's not just, though, you and your brothers-in-arms being affected by all this. In the book, you wrote about the Afghan children waiting outside your base for chocolate biscuits one minute and removing dead Taliban from the battlefield the next. Yeah, they had a pretty shitty lot in life. You know, like, these kids spend most of their day standing by our shit pit, you know, where we burn our shit, throw our rubbish into. Smells delightful, I'm sure. I mean, the whole country smells delightful, to be fair, mate. So, I mean, we were pretty humping most of the time, so... It wasn't really worse than anything else. But yeah, these kids are there. We come out and we give them a lot of our ration packs. And, you know, we give them, honestly, most of what people sent out to us is probably given to the kids. Like welfare parcels, probably just like handed straight over to the kids. But I had my little uh, smoking pancake fan club. You know, whenever they saw me, they used to say, smoking a pancake. Because you I, taught them that? Yeah, because I, well, yeah, I taught them. They need to know Austin Powers trivia. But yeah, they'd follow me around, you know, like it's funny because as soon as you start going into the certain like areas, like getting close to the Taliban areas, they just suddenly like, they'd be like, yeah, no, we're not stupid enough to go down here. But then when you come back and they kind of cheer you in, which is really cool. And yeah, dude, when Taliban are dead, they don't send out people to pick them up. Oh, it's not people, adults sending the kids. So you see that gang of kids like just struggling because it's hard. Like you think about it, right? If you're a little kid, and I'm talking little kids, not teenagers. Under 10? Sometimes. For their ground clearance to get a body up is not easy. So they were pretty much having to drag the bodies in. It's not easy to drag a body. 
So these you know, little kids, it's that, that was their lot in life. Keep your head down, try not to get killed, go beg for some biscuits, then go pick up some dead Terry. Well, Gaz, tell me about one of your favorite contacts where you got to fulfill the war boner dream and engage Terry Taliban to your most great delight. Yeah, it was a fun day. Like if the IED day was the day that was like one of the worst in my life, then this was probably one of the best in my life. The short story is that we would patrol towards a pretty steep-sided wadi. And the other side of this wadi was like all Taliban territory, you know, like nobody patrolled down this way without getting contacted. It just didn't happen. But somehow we patrolled right to the front line without getting any contact at all. We weren't really sure what to do because we were like, we thought there's no way on earth this is going to happen. So we started patrolling back across this open field and we were snaking along. We had like, we knew that one side of this wadi was, um, I think like a, a soccer field, right? The top end of it was friendly. One side of it is empty desert, nothing really there. The bottom end of it is enemy. And then one of the long sides of it is enemy. So you're walking down into like this L shape of enemy. You know, we got down there and we turned back north and we were kind of disappointed thinking like, oh, well, we go, because we all got geared up for a fight. We're like, all right, awesome. We're going south. It's going to be a scrap. And then the next thing you know is like Jake Pink Mist. He described it later as being in a stadium with thousands of people clapping. That's kind of what it sounded like at first. And then after a couple of seconds of kind of standing there like a rabbit in headlights, like, well, not even a couple of seconds, probably, probably like 0.3 of a second. It's like, oh shit, they're shooting at us. That's not clapping. It's not clapping. It's no. And it's weird because it's like, you know, we've been shot at early in the tour and we've been blown up and stuff, but that volume of fire. It was really weird to be in there because it was like all that kind of sounds and stuff and you're seeing a bit of dirt kick up and it was, there was a lot of it. It was one of those moments I'm like, you know, I don't like to sound, sound like braggadocious and shit about some of this stuff, but you got to do something that's hard or something like that and you have to look back at something in your life and go like, look, dude, you did this, you can do this. And like that moment for me was as soon as it happened, it started happening and I started running towards it so that I could get to the front because I had the machine gun. Now that I'm getting a bit older and stuff, I'm allowing myself to kind of be proud of that because it's like you should take strength from moments where you've done something. You can, I'm not saying it's doing anything special, but it's like, look, you did what you're supposed to do. Like a reasonable person would probably just hit the deck at that point. You didn't. And like, I think all soldiers need to do that because we're too hard on ourselves. Instead of being like, oh, I did this at this time. It's like, oh, well, there was that one contact where I didn't kill 50 of the enemy with my bayonet. You know, that's kind of how we think. Yeah, but this day, dude, I ran up to the front with the machine gun, got down on my belt buckle, and I uh, just started putting the rounds down. The idea that you could see the individual fires, that was not this kind of contact. You know, this wasn't like American Sniper where they're standing in the middle of the road. I mean, God damn, I'm so jealous of anyone who's ever had a target like that. Like, these were people firing through murder holes, firing through compound walls, they're firing from green zone. You could tell where it was coming from roughly by the direction. You could see a bit of tracer and, you know, occasional muzzle flash and all that kind of stuff. But really, I was just like, area weapon hose the area down and i just started like flying through rounds on the machine gun and it was the best moment of my fucking life it was amazing it was so much fun and, uh, even when i found out that jake had been shot in the neck you know once i found out that he was going to be okay obviously there was an initial moment of like oh, jesus christ you know what's going to happen but even then not so much <laughs> i was still kind of enjoying i was so high on adrenaline and like, i was buzzing dude i was like absolutely high on adrenaline this is why soldiers, or not all soldiers, I'm not, no, I'm not going to put everyone in this group. This is why a lot of soldiers get drug problems when they come out. The high is unlike anything I've ever come close to having before or ever had since, including drugs. Like, it's just, it just was insane. It was that moment, and I, this is, you know, a lot of this stuff is thought with hindsight, 
But it's that moment that I always wanted. I always wanted to play into that moment. Always wanted to have that experience of having rounds flying back and forth and there's guns going off and there's mortars going off and, you know, the warriors turn up and they start firing. It's just noise everywhere. It's just like, this is one of the things I don't think people get about combat. It's how fucking noisy it is. It's noise. And you're shouting. When you shout, it picks up your adrenaline more as well. You're shouting at each other and then there's rounds going in. You just, I just do the total fuck fest for your senses. You know, you just have no idea what is, oh, well, you do have an idea what's going on but you're just flooded with, with all this like kind of sensory overload it's not even bloodthirsty in the way you describe it because you're shooting at targets you in a way can't see it's not like you came away with that knowing taliban you killed that day it's more the experience of being there surrounded by all that action and a part of it and contributing to it yeah it's being that and it's knowing that there's that danger too because look let's be funny i remember once when i, I did like a range package in somewhere i think it was like albania and it was one of those range package areas where you could like, you're up in the mountains and you can do fantastic ranges because there's no restrictions in arcs. You know, you've got to blow the shit out of things and it's trench clearances with grenades, like grenades and all that kind of stuff. So you're posting grenades, you're getting up over the top, putting a full mag and auto in, you know, moving the next target. And these attacks are lasting for hours. I remember at the time a sergeant major going, if you don't enjoy this, you shouldn't be in the infantry. So it's like that. So you've got all that noise and everything going off, all that mutual, like, the, you know, the, you, you've got the supporting fire going down, you know, that adrenaline, that physical, you know, activity going on. I say activity like it's a yoga class. But then there's the added thing of knowing that at any moment you could get hit. So it takes it to another level. And there was points where I could see the enemy moving around. And there are points, you know, you shot them. Yeah. <laughs> again, that was a fucking great moment for me. I loved it. As moments I look back, so when I played rugby, you know, I was a forward. Didn't get a score many tries in my time being a forward. I scored um, a few as a forward. My yeah, time. well, obviously you weren't doing enough work on the on the deck, mate. But <laughs> I remember, you know, there's a lot of times I can look back to scoring tries and, and, and remember them quite clearly. And, and I would say putting down the enemy is like that. It's like scoring a try. Sure, his family thinks differently, but like I said, big boy rules. He turned up for the fight, got put down. So that's just how it is. You have encounters with IEDs. You get shot at by the Taliban. As you've alluded to, one of your mates, Jake, is even shot through the neck and millimetres either way, could have been death or paralysis. But you and your friends are ultimately hit harder by psychological wounds rather than physical ones for the most part. In the book, you detail Jake, known as Pink Mist's breakdown, and I'll leave readers to discover his journey through your writing. But let's touch on your journey out of the army and the struggles that entailed. To start, when you left Afghanistan finally, did you know that you were done? I mean, I tried to stay on in Afghanistan for back-to-back -to -back tours and the people, uh, like it was actually going to happen. And then the two COs of the units involved had a little spat. And because of that, our CO wouldn't let us stay on. So if you're listening, you can go fuck yourself because I really wanted to stay on that tour. And like, you know, it was funny, dude, because that's something that like, like literally today, I can't forgive that person for, for stopping me staying on that other tour. I missed out on Opmarsh Tarak, which was the biggest heliborne operation since Vietnam. And like, I can't tell you how much that fucking pisses me off as a soldier like because i'm not going to be a soldier again that was my chance to do stuff like that you know and i had to rupert fucking take that decision away from me but i'm not angry <laughs> um, <laughs> we've established that yeah and so yeah so i was i think that's why i was so angry because i knew that once i left that place it was probably that was it soldiering up for me and the reason was because like you know iraq they'd already you know, there was a troop announcement to pull out in iraq i mean realistically once we pulled out of basra there was no going back into it proper you know like it had been and in Afghanistan, I saw the same thing was going to be happening. And I thought I'd gone through the misery of trying to get out to places so many times that I knew even if I stick in for it, as soon as I get in now, when we get back, it's probably going to be two years before they fucking pull the finger out and get me out there. 
And I knew that it just wasn't going to be carrying on like it was. It just wouldn't be. So, yeah, that hit me hard, dude. I, now, when I got back to the UK, I was probably days where I was like, oh, that's probably a good thing. But deep down, it wasn't happening. I, did, I wasn't happy. I didn't feel done. I still don't feel done now. I don't think I ever will be. And I think that's one thing that over the last few years, I'm starting to get better with the mental stuff because I'm like, I'm accepting that I'm never going to be accepting of it. You're accepting your limitations. Yeah. Well, I was like this point of, I was always had this point of, when's it going to be that I just don't want to go back anymore? When's that point going to be? And then I've accepted now that point's never going to come. Because I heard this uh, Iwo Jima veteran, he's fucking 90 something years old. And they're like, would you do it again? Do you want to go back? He's like, hell yeah, I want to do it again. I'm like, oh, maybe you don't stop wanting to go back to it. Those early days, man, like it was weird. It's like breaking up with your girlfriend. But finding a new girlfriend's a lot easier than finding another tour to go on. You cover your emotional journey, leaving the army and all the struggles that entails with great depth, honesty and nuance in the book. So I won't try to unfairly summarize it for fear of not doing it justice. Obviously, I'm encouraging listeners to go get a copy or listen to a copy and check it out. But obviously, we will talk a bit about your journey post-military today. To start with that, can I get you to read the opening few sentences of your new book, Brothers in Arms? All right, you bugger. <laughs> okay. I never thought that I would want to take my own life. That all changed after Afghanistan. And this book is based on the journals that I kept during my time there. Maybe my opinions here seem raw and angry, but I have been true to how we felt at the time. Almost a decade has passed since our tour, and I have softened with hindsight. But this book is about our experiences on the ground, and so it would be wrong of me to moderate our behaviour and attitudes for the sake of people's feelings now that I am safe from harm and free of bullshit. Good to be back in the audiobook booth with you. <laughs> so, Gez, your internal battle, your struggle with drug addiction, your contemplation of suicide, what ultimately brought you out of that dark place? Uh, I mean, there's several reasons, dude. One of which is rediscovering purpose. I would say, you know, like the mission, having a mission in life, having something that it's like, you're not floating along just like, what is the fucking point in this? Because, you know, you, what really I struggled with is going from, I am a soldier and I soldier to, I have no idea what I am. I am someone who wants a soldier who isn't soldiering. And when I started struggling, as I say, I was probably 30 years old. I mean, I did my best to shorten my life, but realistically I had a long, potentially long one ahead of me. And it's like, what the fuck am I going to do for the rest of that? You defined your sense of self as a soldier and you lost that tribe, you lost that purpose. Exactly, exactly. Like, that's totally it. And it's one of those things that I'd gone into with no idea that that would happen. I just kind of assumed that I'd come out and just figure things out. And you know what? It turns out being a personal trainer in the gym isn't as fulfilling as being a soldier. Who would have thought? And it was, yeah, it was, it was really hard. And like I said, there's a loss of, you know, that loss of excitement, that loss of adrenaline. When you're looking for something to replace adrenaline and highs, and when you don't know what to do with your life, uh, it seems quite an obvious answer that you start doing a lot of drugs. So that's what I did. And at what point when you're deep in addiction and emotional pain, what's the, is there a turning point? Is there a switch that starts heading you in a new direction? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I mean, when I think about this stuff, I can't lose sight of the question because I start just thinking like, what were you doing, you dickhead? <laughs> so, right, the, the point is I'd like to say there was a point where I was sitting down and I had a vision come to me and I was like, oh, I need to change my way. Actually, I just ran out of money to buy drugs. Ran out of money. I spent all my money that I'd saved up. I spent all the money that I earned. And I managed to get into a lot of debt too. Debt to family, debt to friends, debt to the banks. Although I'm not really bothered about them. That's, that's one thing. I always felt really guilty about family and stuff. 
But, you know, the banks was kind of like, yeah, well, you look fuck off and get enough out of me as it is. But then, yeah, there was an unfortunate event where one of the guys that had been with us in Iraq and Afghanistan took his own life. And that just happened to coincide when I ran out of money. And if I wanted two things to really slap me in the face and make me look into what I was doing with my life, then they were it. I realized then that I was like, you know what, dude, if you don't get help, you are going to be dead. And I didn't want to be dead. I mean, I sometimes did, but deep down, I didn't want to be dead. Superficially, I wanted to be. I wanted to be like, this is miserable. I don't want to be a part of this. I feel like a burden. I'm a piece of shit, which I was. I was, was a fucking piece of shit. There might be some reasons behind it, which are understandable, but I was still a fucking piece of shit. Your suicide would have been a burden in itself. Exactly. And I, I was like not stupid enough to realize that because I'm thinking, right, I'm a fucking burden. People would be better off rid of me. And if there was a switch I could have flicked and just gone, you know, like a kind of like a men in black pen thing where people just forget about me, then I would have fucking done that. I would 100% would have. And I think that this is something that a lot of soldiers do with suicide is that they feel like they're taking one for the team. I'm sure there are some out there because they do it because they can't stop seeing certain things and things like that. And it's just painful to them. But I'm 100% convinced that a lot of people do it because they're like, hey, you know what? I'm a soldier. What does a soldier do? He fucking sacrifices himself. I'm a burden. Everyone will be better off without me. And that's not a, oh, everyone will be better off without me, cry for help. It's like they genuinely think that. I thought that people will be better off without me. And on paper, they would be. They would have been better off without me. They would have more money. They would have had this fucking drunk, drugged up asshole fucking arguing with everyone and smashing the fucking furniture. But obviously, emotionally, I think a mum would prefer getting a fucking smashed piece of furniture every day than having a dead son. Well, we both know people who have made that decision and seen the aftermath it has on the families. And it's rough and you're right. And obviously, I'm really glad you recognize that and are still with us today. Yeah, thanks, man. Me too. Would you say you're stronger for going through this pain? Oh, fuck yeah. 100% dude. I'm still a lot, bit of a weasel in a lot of ways, but I've had great parents with so a soft upbringing. I'm still soft now in a lot of ways, but like I can be hard when I need to be because this seems like I'm contradicting myself and I am. But I, at the time when I was feeling bad for myself, I couldn't see how much worse things could be. And I didn't realize really that I had a, like this new superpower that I could actually tap into. I didn't see that then. I just saw the negatives. Now I'm like, well, dude, look, I'm putting out a book right now about this stuff. Like I've got, a, like there's a book come out of it, which is a positive. But the biggest positive is I can speak with authority when I'm talking to all the people who are going through it. Not just this, but other things. And I've had some really good moments in the last couple of years where I've had lads who, not even military lads, but lads that know me from the gym or whatever, who have been like, you might have a chat. Because I've made this stuff public on my Facebook. Like some of the stuff I wrote on my Facebook, I wrote while I was heavily under the influence of drugs and literally wanting to blow my brains out. And I wrote stuff like, and I've left it up there. I've never gone back to look at this stuff, but I left it up there. You're publishing a book now. Why does it matter? Yeah. Of course, bolted on that one, isn't it? So I've had people come up to me when they're having mental health issues, asking me, I mean, I, yeah, do I, I still have bad days? Of course I do. Everyone does. But generally, I've got my shit together now. And not just got my shit together. I Like when I see, I kind of compare myself to other people's lives, as, which you really shouldn't. You know, you should only compare your life to your own life. But I kind of feel like, very privileged to be in a position where people come to me for advice. Now, some of my advice isn't for everybody because we're all different, but there's definitely some things that I think that I can say with authority will help people's mental health. So yeah, am I stronger from it? Definitely. But I also feel like that whole thing with purpose and mission, I've actually had a mission out the back of it as well, which is to not spread the gospel in a preachy way because I definitely think that when it comes to mental health, People coming to you is a lot more powerful than you going, all right, mate. Oh, yeah, you got that problem with you. Don't worry, mate. I've been through that. I'll tell you. That just doesn't resonate with people. I think people need to come to it in their own time. Unfortunately, not everyone will. 
do. There's like suffering in life. Some people will unfortunately never come round to the point where they want to seek help. But I'm telling you this, if people don't want it, it ain't going to work. People need to want it to work. And when they do, I'm glad that I can be there to help. Well, you wanted it. You sought help, not only from friends and family, but professional help. You went through this growth and you're still learning. You're still on a journey, but you are a fantastic example, I think, of what's called post-traumatic growth. Yeah, I like that saying. Here's the thing as well, dude. Like, yeah, veterans, have we been through some shit? Yeah, sure. But so is everyone. So post-traumatic growth could be somebody that has cancer and gets through it. But you don't have to be like, a veteran of the military or an emergency responder. It applies to... Yeah, ex exactly. And I think that vets can be guilty sometimes of uh, trying to make... Because look, especially when you're in the infantry, you feel like you're better than everyone else and stuff like that. So the whole trauma thing, and it's not like veterans fault a lot of the time. It's because society is like, oh, poor you in a lot of ways. And media is. Well, yeah, we kind of forget like, so I, I, you know, I know I've had people come and talk to me about things, you know, out of respect to them. I'm not going to see what those things are. But let me tell you, because they'd say, I know it's nothing compared to what you've been through. And they'd tell me and I'd be like, this is a million times worse than anything I've been through. I'm like, yeah, dude, everyone has a shit. You might not have had it now. While you're listening, you might be thinking, I haven't had any shit. Unfortunately, life will get you at some point. You will hurt. You will go through some shit. Hopefully, it'll be later than rather than sooner because, well, you know, actually, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to, no, I'm not going to stick with that because one thing I do think is that going through shit when you're in your, in your 20s or whatever in the military, you've gone through it then. And hopefully, you've learned the lessons and you've got those lessons for the rest of your life. And it's like a superpower. Let's be honest. How many people realize that they're going to fucking die one day? Not many. Most people apparently don't realize that until they start getting in the 50s and the parents start dropping off, right? If you've lost friends in your 20s, you've been taught that lesson very young. And that lesson is a gift. Well, it's a fucking horrible gift, but it is a gift later on because it's like, if you use that lesson properly, that means you should live a full life. And a full life can mean different things to different people. But what it definitely should mean is just sitting on your ass and letting your potential go to waste. I know you won't be knowingly quoting him, but Mark Donaldson, VC of Australia, describes it the same way as a gift. If you can learn from this, if you can get through that, then you can get through anything. Yeah. I mean, Mark's probably stolen that from me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll let him know. <laughs> no, don't please. <laughs> a few paragraphs down from what you read aloud before, you also write, though I know little of war, I feel as though I know a great deal about soldiers and the comradeship that exists between them. I won't get into an argument with you about whether you know war or not, but for any other soldiers listening to this podcast, what would you want them to take away from this chat or from reading your book? Even if it does make you a pussy at talk, which I don't think it does, better a live pussy than a dead mate. I mean, I have never had a reaction from any of my mates when I have gone to speak to them and like told them that I've been struggling or anything. There has been anything other than, why didn't you come to me sooner? Just think about what you would want your mate to do if the positions were reversed. Would you say to your mate that they're a pussy if they're struggling? If they are, you're probably a cockback and don't deserve help anyway. But no, see, in all seriousness, like we have been there for each other as soldiers. Through, like You would literally die for your friends. So the least you can do is talk to them. And I just think like if you've been in the unfortunate position to lose a friend, you know how fucking bad that hurts. Do you want to put that on your friends? If you are struggling and you don't get help, things aren't going to turn around on their own. You have to make it happen. And there's a lot of different factors that will come into that happening. But I tell you what, it's a lot easier to start talking to a friend than it is to start talking to a therapist or somebody on the end of a hotline or something like that. Even if it's just texting your friend, we got to get past this thing of, we're soldiers, we don't talk, we bottle it up. 
that's not the world anymore. Like, and who wants to live in that world where you, okay, oh yeah, I got to the end of my life and nobody knew that I was miserable. Well, one, they will know you're miserable because you will have been a horrible bastard to everyone else. You can't hide this stuff. If stuff's bothering you, it's going to come up. You might be angry to your wife. You might be violent towards your kids. You know, do you want that? Or do you want to be the best version of yourself? Live your best life, as the Insta host would say. If you want to get the best out of life, you have to do some stuff at the hard. And I say this in the book. If you wanted life to be easy, you wouldn't have become a soldier. There was a lot of easier routes that you could have taken, but you chose to become a soldier. You chose to become a soldier and the, you took the good from that and you took the bad from it. And some of the stuff, the fallout, it might be hard for the rest of your days to deal with, but like anything in life, you've got to take the rough with the smooth and you've just got to talk to people. You've got to talk to your mates and you've got to be a team. Just because you left the military doesn't mean you left the team. You're still the fucking team. Was it the uniform that made you want to die for your mates? Or was it the fact that they were your mates? And that doesn't change when you leave, you know? Well, Gez, I find the honesty in your writing inspiring. Was it a cathartic process? Dude, I mean, it's all cathartic. Like even having this chat now is kind of cathartic. Reading the audio book has been cathartic. You know, every time if I do a post on social media about it, it's cathartic. And I think this is the thing is the acknowledgement that you don't just write a book, close the back and go, ah, well, that's good. All sorted now. It's knowing it's an ongoing process. Talking to a therapist can help, talking to a mate can help, talking to your cat can help, writing a book can help. It's about getting stuff out because this stuff will just sit inside you and it gets dark and it grows and it, you know, it spreads into other parts of your life. You have to have a, a mode to get stuff out. And, you know, writing has definitely helped me and not just in this nonfiction stuff, but in the fiction that I write, they've got different names and maybe then in different periods of time, there's elements of characters in there or there's things that I've been through, but I'm writing in a different way. You know, it all gets put out on the page and. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been a, um, a helpful process for me, for sure. And besides your writing, Gez, I should also plug another one of your creative endeavours. You started the Veteran State of Mind podcast. I did. Or Ranty State of Mind. Yes, you uh, don't podcast, you pod rant. I pod rant. But again, it's cathartic. It's one of those things, like some of the episodes I don't rant, it depends who I talk to. Like if you listen to some of the episodes where like I'm talking with like one of my American friends and... Because often, yeah, you're bringing on other friends who've been in the military. Exa American exactly. If I'm talking with uh, Jake, aka Pink Mist, the guy got shot in the neck, you know, when we finished recording the first podcast, we finished and I was like, I'm going to make a coffee. And he's like, right, I'm going to go get some fags. I was like, you don't smoke. He's like, I do, I do again now. Yeah, talking about it, it brought up a lot for us. We were actually both shaking at the end of it. And yeah, we went on some rants and, but we had a good laugh too. There's moments where we're like pissing ourselves and that's what it's all about. It's like those taking those good moments and bad. And the uh, veteran state of mind has been a lot of fun because I've been, you know, I've got US Army Rangers that I've talked to and friends from my own company. We've got military cross winners, bled bayonet charges in Afghanistan, that kind of stuff. And I've learned a bit on there. You know, I've had my ch opinions challenged a couple of times. It's definitely not a case of just because someone comes on, I'm going to agree with what they say and they're not going to agree with me because the people I have on and people that I know. So we feel comfortable enough to have an honest conversation. And I understand, therefore, what it's doing for you, but what's the purpose for the listener? What's the goal you're trying to achieve with it? I don't know if we have listeners. <laughs> <laughs> you're just recording conversations you happen to be having. Okay, so the purpose for the listener, it's kind of twofold. So if you are a civilian listening, it will give you an insight into how soldiers really think. Like what we really think. If you know somebody that's wanted to join, it's going to give you a no bullshit look at what life in the military is like. The recruiter is not going to tell you about the people coming into the showers hosing you down with piss. <laughs> that is not going to be a part. That's not going to be part of the recruit brochure. We're going to talk about the good points. We're going to talk about the bad points. People who have known about wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, they're going to probably hear an angle of it that they've not heard before. And I think it's important that we have people on, just like you do, 
from different walks of life, different branches, all this kind of stuff. So that people get the, you know, because it's not one experience, it's myriad experiences. And then for veterans listening, I want them to feel like they're sitting down in the guard room or, you know, sitting around the patrol base and it's the blokes talking, ranting, laughing. It's fucking awesome for me when I get a message from someone who served who says like, I love listening to it because I feel like I'm just back with the blokes. And that is the main effort. Like all the other stuff is great. If civilians get off on it and all that stuff, brilliant. But I know that veterans are listening to it and they're feeling connected to being back with the boys or the girls. And that is, to me, is like, you know, that is the most important thing. And that's something that really makes me fucking happy. Gez, where can people find you and your podcast online? You can find me in the uh, social media world at GRJ Books. So Golf Romeo Juliet Books, one word. Mostly active on uh, Instagram. If you search on Facebook for Garrett Jones, come up with me on there. Or if you search for at GRJ Books, I'll come up on there too. Twitter at GRJ Books, but I don't use it much at Veteran State of Mind for the podcast stuff or vsonpodcast.com. And that's got all the links for the social media, the subscribing buttons and all stuff like that. We've reflected on the past, Gez, and we've promoted what you're doing in the present. What does the future hold for you? More writing, I think. I mean, I don't think too far into the future, honestly, mate, because it's like, if you'd have told me when I left the army that I would have done a few years doing the, you know, the anti-piracy work, I never would have, would have known that, but an opportunity came up and I took it. Same with a lot of the writing stuff. It's I like to be flexible. It's one of the things I love about writing. You know, like if an amazing opportunity came up in a year's time, I might put the writing on the shelf for a, a year, you know? But I love the writing. I'm enjoying it. I've got a good steady stream of books coming out into the next few years. I have a film that I co-wrote with the Green Beret in pre-production. We're hoping to shoot that this year. We've got some, I'm not going to just announce it right now because I don't want to jinx it, but we've got some names attached to that that people would know, household names. That would be really awesome because the movie has a great message kind of covers a lot of the stuff we talk about here. I want to challenge like a lot of the veteran cliches you get out of there. Even though I'm a veteran cliche in a lot of ways, angry guy who rants and stuff and abuses <laughs> substances. Uh, there's a lot of fun shit going on, dude. I'm just, I've taken a lot of time as well to every day I'm trying to get out there and definitely not trying to work myself into the ground. I'm trying to look after myself mentally, physically, hit the gym, get out in the countryside, enjoy the fresh air. And by doing that stuff, I've become a lot happier, you know, mentally. And I'm trying to travel as much as I can. Because like I said, I'm going to be a fucking long time dead. So I want to travel. I want to meet people. I want to make some more mistakes because they, they make the good writing. And that's how you learn. And just trying to live a, an interesting life, which is worth living and worthy of the sacrifice of, you know, the guys that gave their lives so that people like me can uh, do what I do. Well, everyone, listen to Gez's podcast and buy all his books. He's a best-selling author on the Sunday Times and New York Times bestseller lists. But especially by Brothers in Arms, whether it's a gift or just for yourself. It's darkly funny and shockingly honest, an unforgettable account of the brutal reality of war, every boring, scary, exciting moment, and the bonds of friendship that can never be destroyed. Brothers in Arms is out now in print, ebook, and audiobook formats. Garrett Jones, thank you for your service and for this conversation. Well, thank you, mate. It's been a pleasure, and um, thank you for listening. If you're interested in knowing more about Gezer's military service, in addition to buying his book, of course, he's done two podcasts with Global Recon, interviewed by John Hendricks and Tim Kolzak. Episode 104 covers Gezer's time in Iraq and episode 113, his time in Afghanistan. For weekly interviews with Australian military veterans and other special episodes like this conversation with Gez, subscribe to Life on the Line. Our interviews feature men and women of all ranks and service branches including special forces, from World War II to the modern era. We're available in all major podcast apps and on YouTube. 
Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and follow us on social media at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at L-O-T-L Pod on Twitter. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget...